Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Most federal employees work outside of the Washington, D.C. area. For that 85%, the federal executive boards have been helping collaboration since 1961. Now the FEB has a new funding model and a changing structure. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman got more from the Office of Personnel Management's Deputy Associate Director of the FEB program, Kelly DeGraff. Most federal agencies have regional offices in key geographic areas throughout the country. And in each area, the senior executives from these offices, they come together to form the federal executive boards or the FEBs. And they meet regularly to collaborate on projects, to share resources. Um, These boards help the government work better really all over the country. There are 26 boards across the country and each represent an average of 140 agencies, um, which is really impressive. The federal government is the largest federal employer in the United States with approximately 2.2 million employees, and roughly 85% of those employees live outside of the national capital region. And that is who uh, these federal executive boards represent. And they're really integral in advancing community engagement, employee development, um, emergency preparedness efforts, and really making government accessible on the local level. So maybe you can share a little bit more about maybe some specific examples of how FEBs uh, work. You know, you mentioned you have community engagement efforts, you help with emergency preparedness. So what what does that look like or what are some of the things that you work on there? This is my favorite question that I get asked because it is the uh, it's my opportunity to really tell the incredible story of the FEBs. So. They really are instrumental in in several areas, including creating shared training programs that benefit multiple agencies. And uh, these types of things not only streamline costs, but they really also foster that sense of community among federal employees. In fact, just yesterday, so I'm in Seattle. um, I'm in Seattle right now meeting with our, our Seattle board. And yesterday I met with federal employees who are part of the Seattle Leadership Associates Program. And this is a program that brings together emerging leaders from across 170 federal agencies, which I just think is incredible. And they come together and and the program is really about cultivating that next generation of federal leaders. And they do this by equipping them with the skills um, needed to succeed. And they match them with mentors and lead them through special projects. And, you know, this is the example just from the Seattle federal board. And again, I had the opportunity, the pleasure to meet with them yesterday, but most, most FEBs offer similar programs for early career employees. And what is also incredible is that they maintain an active alumni network so that individuals who have been in the program then tend to come back and serve as mentors for these emerging leader, these emerging leaders programs. So that's a, that's a big one is these um, these learning and, and professional development opportunities. Um, the FEBs also partner with educational institutions regionally to really work to create uh, diverse talent pipelines into public service. They meet with students, they attend career fairs, they meet with counselors, all to promote um, public service and, and federal employment. 
And they, along those same lines, they um, conduct community outreach. They organize uh, volunteer opportunities like blood drives, clothing drives, um, holiday toy drives, and they lead the combined federal campaign in their regions. Um, the FEBs also conduct interagency emergency exercises, and this is so important. They conduct these exercises in advance of an emergency to be able to establish protocols and identify areas for improvement before an event happens. And they really establish that cohesiveness and, and um, connectedness. For example, New York. Um, New York recently held an exercise that involved, it was in partnership with the New York Emergency Management and it involved over 60 agencies all coming together um, and really understanding each other's plans and who brings what to the table. Um, two more areas that I'll just that I'll mention that I think are really important. The next one is um, DEIA. Uh, so they the board sponsored diversity, equity, equity, inclusion and accessibility committees. Um, these committee these committees come together to implement training programs to address things like unconscious bias and create again those mentorship opportunities to support underrepresented talent and they really provide a space for these important discussions and the sharing of best practices and then one of the other um, pieces that is consistent across the boards are recognition programs. The FEBs do a phenomenal job at celebrating the the incredible work of our workforce of, of workforce excellence through these cross agency uh, recognition activities. And while each board is unique, they all focus on core programmatic themes that that really include things like workforce hiring, recruitment leadership development, uh, emergency preparedness, and community community initiatives. Um, it's challenging to single out any one board as they all contribute so significantly in each of these areas. I know that you just started your role very recently. So are there things, you know, in the first few months that you've been in this position that you're going to, that you've been focusing on, or what are some of your, I guess, short-term goals uh, for the FEBs? Yeah, absolutely. So I just um, I just celebrated my second month, um, you know, in in my role, and um, I'll share, Drew, that the FEBs are going through a significant transformation right now, and this transformation is aimed at really solidifying their role as a central resource for interagency collaboration. We like to say beyond the Beltway, right? Um, this reform is known as FEB Forward, and FEB Forward addresses longstanding issues of inconsistent funding and, and fr a fragmented governance structure. So FEB Forward, you know, it introduces a new funding model, it introduces executive leadership and a tri-governance um, council and really a realignment. There's a lot of change that's happening right now. And that's really, I think, important to understand in order for me to really answer your question well because right now my job is to really help us navigate this change. And my focus is on a blend of organizational excellence and uh, meaningful impact. And so working in partnership with the staff, with the boards, with various stakeholders, we developed a roadmap for 2024 because 2024 is this transitional year for us. And this roadmap focuses on three pillars. And the first pillar is around uh, building a cohesive organization with inclusive governance. And what this looks like as you translate this into reality is this is about 
crafting a five-year strategic plan um, and refining our mission and refining our vision for greater alignment. So that's the first one, really working to build that cohesive organization. The second pillar is around ensuring excellence and operational impact. This is a dual focus, um, and the focus of this pillar is on ensuring fiscal accountability as well as the execution of our flagship programs. We want to make sure that as we're in this year of transition, uh, while we're building, almost like a startup, and while we're building, that we are still supporting our existing boards and that we are continuing to support those flagship programs that they are known for in their community. And then the third pillar, and you're helping us, you're actually helping us right now reach this third pillar, is elevating the profile of the FEBs. We want to enhance our narrative. We want to do a better job of communicating the value and the contributions of the FEBs. So I would say that that is the, that is the focus for uh, FY24. And then um, that five-year strategic plan as we craft that, and that's going to be crafted with um, input from all of our various stakeholders and staff members. And that will, um, that will guide us then over the next several years. There are so many FEBs that exist, and there's this big network across the country right now. So do you ever see any challenges in trying to communicate or collaborate across all of these different uh, areas? Or how often are you going out in the field like that and communicating with FEB leaders? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. And so one of the one of the initial things when I first came on board was um launched this what what I call a listening tour along with my support staff from headquarters and we came up with a plan um, to make sure that it was really important to make sure that before we started to implement anything I I needed to make sure that I understood what the pain points were where the successes were um, and what our boards thought should be the the main focus so this listening tour, um, first started virtually, attending a lot of the board meetings virtually. And then over the last month, I've been able to um, to visit quite a few. So I was in Dallas, Fort Worth last month. Um, last week, I was in New York and New Jersey. Um, and then uh, I think next week or the week after, it's it's Pittsburgh. So we have this plan um, of, of doing this outreach and really getting out with the boards and sitting down with them and hearing hearing what they think FEB forward should um, should be and how we should move, how we should move forward. Talking about going out and reaching out to all of these different FEBs and meeting with them in person, you mentioned that uh, there are, you hear both their successes and their pain points. So maybe can you give an example or two of what are some of the things that FEBs are saying, hey, you know, this could be improved or hey, this is working really well? Yeah, absolutely. So I will say that Overall, there is resounding support for bringing the FEBs under the umbrella of OPM. Um, the boards recognize that move as being um, very strategic and uh, very thoughtful, and that they see it as really enhancing the effectiveness and the reach of the FEBs. And by having by having the staff centralized, and this is what I'm hearing as I'm as I'm speaking with the boards. By hearing, by having the FEB centralized, we're making our operations more unified and more efficient, which then increases the collaboration and it really positions us to stay focused on key goals. The 
centralized oversight also makes us more accountable and transparent, which really then improves our overall responsiveness to both government agencies and to the, the public. And so I'm hearing that from the from the boards and they're really excited about the um, about the change. I think that some of the some of the consistent pain points that I hear across the board of the boards is um, very similar to what I hear in also the private sector. There is a great concern about the workforce overall and being able to recruit diverse talent um, into into public service. And how do we as as public servants compete with the private sector. And so um, that is a concern across all of the boards. And so we are starting to work on strategies of what this looks like. What could an FEB um, strategic initiative look like to really do targeted recruitment and increasing our, earlier I talked about the partnerships that we have with different um, academic institutions, community colleges, universities, um, trade schools, et cetera. And so we're looking at how do we formalize some of these partnerships and really create that pipeline to help reduce some of that um, some of that uncertainty in what the next uh, what the next legacy of of the public service workforce looks like. You mentioned at the top there are a number of FEBs that already, exist. Are there ways that you are looking to expand the program in the future or expand the reach of FEBs um, beyond what they can reach now? While the FEBs have grown modestly since their since their inception, there really are, which was in, I think, 1961, um, there are still areas across the nation with significant federal activity, but no FEB presence. And so under the FEB Forward Initiative, we're looking at ways to fill these gaps or this white space, as we call it. And this could manifest in a number of different ways. And, and some of these include um, the possible addition of new boards, um, expanding the reach of the existing boards by, um, you know, by by advertising their um their leadership training, um, their disaster efforts, their disaster preparedness efforts by incorporating other communities into those efforts. Um, we're looking at, you know, how do we, what makes sense? Because we also don't want to just expand existing boards and have those existing boards lose their local flavor, right? So it's a it's a nuanced balance there. But we also know that we need to reach those other areas that have that significant population of federal employees. And so we're looking at how do we partner with, for example, the Partnership for Public Service? How do we partner with the um, federal executive associations? How do we partner with some of those existing, um, those existing organizations out there where we can really force multiply our efforts by joining, by joining together? So I think that um, there's not, we don't have a, uh, we don't have a firm roadmap or a, a prescriptive roadmap of here's how we're going to do this. I think that in 24 and in 25, we're going to pilot various ways of what this can look like. And the one thing that I've talked with staff about is when we pilot, we also have to be um, we also have to be aware and and not be afraid to fail because 
all pilots don't work. And I also believe that there is a, a very positive element that can come from, and you've probably heard this term before, but from failing forward. So we're going to see what happens and we're going to see how we can how we can fill these gaps. And there'll be some trial and error there. But uh, I think that the opportunities are are really exciting to to uncover. Something else that I I did want to bring up, and you mentioned this earlier, the funding model for FEBs is, um, I believe, changing or in the process of change. So can you explain a little bit more about how FEBs work is funded? And uh, is that something the Biden administration is trying to um, redirect, I suppose? Absolutely. That's a great question. So historically, Drew, the, the FEBs have really faced two main challenges that have, I think, broadly hindered their effectiveness, Um, not stopped their effectiveness because they've they've been incredibly effective, but those two challenges have been inconsistent funding and that fragmented governance. And so the FEB Forward Initiative is really designed to address both of those challenges by introducing both a more stabilized funding and this centralized approach to um, governance. And so this new this new funding model under the new model agencies who fall under the um, chief financial officers act or the cfo act are authorized to contribute a predetermined amount of funds to opm to support the administration of the feb program this is new before this change before this authorization the FEBs functioned on an ad hoc basis where they relied on voluntary resources from agencies in the specific regions. And it was, the support was inconsistent throughout the, throughout the nation. And so this new funding model really is a game changer. It allows us to have um, this predictable funding allows us to better, you know, plan for allocation of resources, including human capital, um, operational expenses, all leading to really more um, effective program delivery. So we're, we're really excited about the about the new funding model. Kelly, just wrapping up here, I know we've we've covered a lot of ground about what FEBs do and you know their importance and, and how far they reach across uh, the nation for the federal workforce. Uh, anything else you can offer in terms of what's the future hold for FEBs or the federal workforce overall? The FEB Forward Initiative that you heard me talk about, it's its not just a short-term solution. It really is a long-term strategy that's strategically designed to meet both current and future challenges. And I think that the, I think that the future of the FEBs is a, we have the opportunity to offer a blueprint for innovation, for agility, and for impact. I think with this streamlined governance and a focus on resource efficiency that we are really setting the stage for a seamless interagency collaboration and really public service excellence. And um, I, I know this is going to sound corny, but I really believe this. I think that we're not just we're not just adapting to change with the FEBs. We're actually leading it, and our boards are, are are really pioneering and leading this change. And it's all to better serve our federal community, and then ultimately the American people. It's a it's a fantastic place to to be right now. Kelly DeGraff is deputy associate director of the Federal Executive Board Program at the Office of Personnel Management. Speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. 
So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to 
very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including Um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because 
first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and work alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.